uh, at this time. Those little ones can go on back with their, to their class. And over here on this table, for your convenience, are some outlines for the sermon as well as the lesson for the Sunday school class. And you can pick that up at this time if you'd like, if you need one. Um, as you're picking those up, I'm just going to say a couple of things. Again, I, I just want to reiterate the fact that it's so good to be here. Um, I have missed the fellowship of the saints tremendously the last couple of weeks due to this weather situation. But I'm thankful that we're all here this morning. I'm thankful that you're safe. And I, I just want to encourage you to know this. Um, every time I would send out a post to say something about we're not having services, I, I had many writing back saying, oh, <laughs> Oh, man, we really wanted to be there. And I want to tell you how unique that is. Um, In the world we live in, and sometimes even in the church world, it's rare to hear those kind of comments. And you're, you're, by God's grace, an exceptional congregation. I think that it's evidence of God's grace in your own life that you respond that way when you can't come together with the saints. You, You desire that, and you desire to worship our Lord and our God through the fellowship and the preaching of the word. And so we, I thank the Lord for you, and I, I give thanks to him for doing that work in you. You are a blessing to us, and I know that that blessing will overflow to the world around us. And that's what we want to address this morning as we, we come to Peter to continue our study there. But before we do that, we must acknowledge that we are weak and we are needy, and we do that by going to God in prayer. And I ask that you would pray for me because I know my neediness, I know my weakness before my God and before you this morning, and I need his help to articulate how to explain, how to uh, drive us deep into the text. I need him to do that. I need the Holy Spirit's help. So if you would pray with me this morning. Father, I, I come to you in the name of Jesus and through his merits alone. He is, he is the door that grants us access to the throne of grace and Holy Spirit, we thank you for illuminating that truth to us, God. We love you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word that speaks volumes to us, Lord, sometimes at at such a rate that we we can't take it all in because of the weightiness of it. And some of the texts we will look at this morning is weighty, and some of the the, the concepts and some of the circumstances surrounding Peter and surrounding the way we are to apply this are, are challenging to us this morning. And Lord, we pray that we would be prepared to do what Peter's calling for us to do. And the way we become prepared is becoming diligent students of your word and applying the truth and living it and speaking it. So God, I pray that you would equip us to do that this morning. That you would convict our hearts this morning for falling short of the commands that you have given us in your word. We're all guilty of that this morning. I know myself and I know that I fall far short of what you desire. And Lord, I pray that when I fall short, I look to the one who never fell short. I look to Christ. And by looking to him, I am encouraged to keep going and to persevere in the faith. Father, I thank you for that promise of perseverance that comes through Jesus' atoning work. We give you praise for that. Teach us, we pray to understand that today in Jesus' name. Amen. As we return to 1 Peter, which we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3 this morning. As we return to 1 Peter, we need to remember that Peter has been addressing how Christians should behave in difficult situations. How how we behave around Gentiles or unbelievers. How we should behave 
toward the government over us, how we should behave toward our employers, how we should behave toward our spouses in difficult situations. And Peter also, last week in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, talked about, or last time we gathered, talked about how we should behave toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. First Peter 3 causes us to ask ourselves some very serious questions this morning. First Peter 3 makes us ask, are we obeying the commands that we've received in chapters 2 and 3? The commands that our Lord gave us. It makes us ask, is Jesus Lord of our life? And it makes us ask, are we prepared to suffer for obeying Jesus as Lord? Are we prepared to tell everyone here today why you would suffer for Jesus? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared if someone walked in here at this moment and said, tell me why you would suffer for Jesus, why you would be obedient to the point of suffering and persecution and oppression for Jesus' sake? If, if you can't answer that this morning, I pray that God will challenge you to know how to answer that. And by the end of the day, you will be able to answer and be willing to answer that question. And you will know at the end of the day that Jesus is the Lord of your life, the master over your life. He has provided all that you need. And sometimes what he provides is an opportunity to profess his name in the face of persecution. Historically, following Jesus as Lord meant suffering and risking everything for his sake. Dr. John Piper said this, he said, Christianity was born in a world of totalitarianism. It was not strange to be persecuted for Christ. What is strange historically is that we're not persecuted for Christ. Sometimes we're not persecuted for Christ because we're not declaring he's Lord of our life. Sometimes that's why we don't receive persecution. We have not made the hope that was, is within us known through the way we live. And we need to be challenged to do that this morning. I want to challenge you by reading to you a story before we get to the text. We will get to the text. But I want to read a story to you about a family that was challenged by the Lordship of Christ. Called into a mission. Called to be missionaries in India. And they were prepared to be persecuted for being obedient to Jesus' call on their life. They had set apart Jesus as Lord of their life. And they were prepared to suffer for, for declaring his lordship and for defending their hope in Christ to the world around them. It's actually a true account of a modern day martyr for Christ. They were missionaries in this place where there would be hostility and they were willing to be obedient. This man in particular, the father, was willing to be obedient with his entire life, devote his life to the lordship of Jesus, and also to devote his family to following in his footsteps. Now listen to this as I read it. This man's name is Graham Steins, or Staines. On January 23rd of 1999, Graham and his two sons, Philip, 11 years old, and Timothy, 6 years old, were murdered by a large mob of militant Hindus. They had gone to a Christian camp in the jungle where Graham was ministering, at midnight, the mob attacked, setting fire to the jeep in which Graham and his sons were sleeping. They were burned alive. When the fire finally cooled, they found the charred body of Graham Staines with his arms around the bodies of his sons. The response of his wife and daughter was on the front page of every newspaper in India. 
With one billion people soon to pass China as the most populous nation of the, on the earth, all of India heard this testimony. Gladys, the wife, wrote this. I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter. Neither am I angry. But I have one great desire. That each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave His life for our sins. Let that burn away hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. That was her response to the death of her family for the sake of Jesus. This family had been prepared to do this for quite some time. This family and this wife in particular and daughter saw suffering as a blessing because through it they were actually able to bring God glory and declare their hope in Christ to the world. This family was ready to give a reason for the hope they had in Jesus. Are we ready? That's the question this morning. Are we ready? This hope and this readiness to face this kind of opposition doesn't happen overnight. We need to understand that. It didn't happen for this family overnight. Their conviction and their devotion and their preparation and their demonstration of Jesus' lordship in their life was part of their daily routine. It was woven into everything they thought and did. They were living sacrifices. They thought that their life actually belonged to Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? To the point that they were prepared to do whatever He called them to do with joy and thanksgiving. Is that, is that resonating in your life today? Think about that. Are you ready to suffer for the lordship of Jesus? Are you ready at any moment to declare his rulership over your life, to be obedient in the face of opposition, to be obedient in the face of persecution, or someone simply mocking you for your stand for the truth? Are you ready for that this morning? Suffering and persecution in our country at this moment may not be part of our daily routine. It's, it's not. It's not, not in the sense of the situation here. But I will tell you this, according to Peter and according to the testimony of God's word throughout God's word. This kind of persecution will come. It will come probably on a a national level at some point in our country. But persecution for Jesus sake, for doing what is right, will come if you do what Peter says, if you obey the lordship of Jesus. If you stand for the truth, if Jesus is Lord of your life, suffering will come to you for taking a stand for what is right. Are you convinced? Are you devoted to Jesus enough to do what this family did? Think about that. You may not have to. But know this, bringing Jesus praise and honor and glory is worth doing this. Do you believe that suffering for Christ is worth the suffering he did for you? It's kind of what you need to think about this morning. I'm just wanting us to think about these things because in Peter 3, 13 through 17, Peter is going to prepare us. He's preparing us for the suffering and the blessings that will come if you follow Jesus as Lord of your life. And listen, that term Lord is huge. You cannot have Jesus as your Redeemer and Savior apart from His Lordship over you. They're inseparable. 
If he's Lord, it means he's master and he's in control of everything we do. And he dominates and permeates our thoughts and our actions and our motives. And that transforms the way we live in the world. And we become a witness for Christ by the way we live. Peter is preparing us to understand that. He just went through chapter 2 explaining how to stand in difficult situations and do what's right. In almost every one of those situations, if you did what is right, you should be blessed, but that doesn't always happen. You, you, you sometimes suffer. And he's going to say even that, that suffering is a blessing. If you look at the text, we're going to read through the text, 13 through 17 this morning. And on your outline you have, if you have one of these, the outline says simply this. Peter prepares us for persecution by commanding us to, number one, be convinced. And number two, be devoted. And number three, be prepared. And number four, be undefiled. Now this morning, in reality, we're only going to cover two of these points. We're going to look at the first two. Be convinced and be devoted. But I want you to hear the text and then we'll talk about this as we go through it together here. 1 Peter three thirteen. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are highly privileged, blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify, set apart, adore, have the preeminence in your life, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one as Lord, master, God. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. May God bless the reading of his word this morning and prepare our hearts and minds for persecution and for blessing. Peter prepares us for persecution by commanding us to, number one, be convinced that God's commands prepare us to be a witness to the world and be convinced that God views our suffering for Christ's sake as a blessing, as a privilege for us. Verse 13 says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And, and the good that he's speaking of in the immediate context, we have to understand, goes back to, into chapter 2, talking about standing in the world among unbelieving Gentiles, among the government that's over you, standing and doing what's right in those situations, being a faithful employee for your employer, being a faithful spouse, being obedient to God's call in your life. Do good in these areas. That's what he's speaking of here. Who is going to harm you for this? And typically, you think about that, that's, it, it would seem ridiculous that you would be harmed for being a good employer or employee, for being a good citizen, for being a good husband or wife. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you do suffer, even if you do what is good. But this, this question he asked, this is a rhetorical question. And you know what the answer is. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The answer is no one. No one. No one. No one can ultimately harm God's children for doing good, for obeying his commands. Now, obedience to his commands and good deeds 
follow the, the things that, we, that he has done in us, this obedience to his commands, it, it may lead to persecution. But what Peter wants us to understand is that that's unusual, but it's not impossible. I mean, Peter, Peter knows it's, it's unusual that if you do good things, you're going to be persecuted for it. But it's not impossible because Peter was an eyewitness of one who did everything good and suffered for it. Peter observed Jesus, but he suffered for doing righteousness, for doing what was good. But he suffered for a divine purpose. He suffered in obedience to the Father's will. He suffered for us. So that we would not suffer. Peter knows and he wants us to know that nothing happens to the Christian. Nothing happens to the chosen child of God. Nothing happens to us without God's either permission or providential design. Nothing happens to us unless God allows it or God providentially brings it about for a purpose. Are you convinced of this? You need to be convinced of this if you're going to stand in opposition, if you're going to stand for the Lordship of Christ in the face of a world that wants to persecute you. You better be convinced that the one you're standing up for is the one who's in control of everything. Romans 8, 28 helps us be more convinced. Go there with me. Romans 8, 28. In Romans 8.28, we find that we have great reason to be convinced that no one can harm us if we belong to God. No one can harm us. Even in the, in the case of Joseph, when Joseph was being treated harshly by his own brothers. In the end of the story, we know that what they meant for evil, God intended for good. This is what Romans 8.28 says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, elect, chosen, according to God's purpose. Now, just notice, it says, we know that God causes, God causes all things. Now, in that word all, this actually is one of those cases where all means all. Anything that befalls the Christian, anything that comes into your life, God is orchestrating and providentially organizing these events to do something good for you and to bring him glory. All things. And this, this helps give us courage to stand when we are treated harshly or persecuted for doing what's right. I mean, when you're treated harshly for doing what's right, you want to just say, I'm going to quit doing what's right. And you can back away or you can compromise. But no, he's saying, be convinced that nothing can befall you that God does not use for some purpose to to glorify his name and to do good to you with. He wants to convince us, Peter wants to convince us, that if we follow God's commands, don't be afraid of what's going to follow after. Following God's commands in chapter 2 and 3 needs to encourage you because you understand that following his commands may lead to the salvation of sinners or it may lead to the glorification of God as we persevere through suffering and persecution. Most likely, if you do what is right, I mean, we see this all the time. If you do what's right in our country right now, if you do the right thing, you, you obey the government as you should, if you care about Gentile unbelievers as you should, as you work hard for your employers and your, you labor with your spouse as you should, you most likely won't receive persecution. But it's not a guarantee that you won't receive persecution. Because when you do what is good, here's what happens. 
When you do what is righteous, when you obey God's word and you are faithful to his scriptures, your behavior is like a flashlight in the dark. Your behavior shines like a light in darkness. Our behavior is seen, visibly seen in this dark world, and it casts a light on the darkness around us. And those who love darkness do not want their sins exposed. And so when you have good behavior, even though it's, it's really attributing or it's giving all glory to God, but it's, it's actually reflecting well on those around you, you're helping those around you, it's also exposing the fact that they are not being obedient to God. And this makes them uncomfortable. And because of their uncomfortable position, they may turn on you. They may oppose you. They may persecute you because your good deeds are exposing their evil. Jesus did this when he came on the scene. Jesus walked through Israel. The Pharisees who looked like the highest point of righteousness, when they saw Jesus and the standard by which Jesus lived and obeyed God, they exposed the darkness in their lives. And even Jesus said, you're just whitewashed sepulchers full of dead man's bones. It exposed them and they responded with hatred. Jesus never did a bad thing to the Pharisees. He spoke the truth to them. But they hated him. Look at 2 Corinthians. This, this will be the testimony of the Christian in many ways. If we do what is right and we do suffer, because this is what happens in 2 Corinthians 2.14. 2.14. The Apostle Paul writes this. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. He says, praise be to God that everywhere we go, we bring forth a fragrant aroma of the, the beautiful aroma of Jesus. Praise be to God. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Those who are being saved see us and see what we do and hear what we say. And they, they respond and they go, oh, this is amazing. And among those who are perishing, it says to the one, we're an aroma from death to death. And to the other, an aroma from life to life. The same people that we, the same situation we go into in the world, and we, we come and we expose the truth and we live the truth, and some people hear that and see that, and they respond by turning to Jesus in thankfulness and praise. But in that same world, when we do that, some people see us, and we expose their sinfulness by our obedience, and they hate us. And they don't smell the life-giving aroma of Jesus. They smell their own death and depravity. They don't like that. You see this happen, don't you, at work or in relationships? When you simply, all you strive to do is simply, you're not, you're not being self-righteous, you're not looking down on unbelievers, but when you simply desire to follow God's word, be faithful to Jesus, and all of a sudden those people who are your friends turn on you. They don't like you because you're too harsh, you're too judgmental. And all you've done is shared the gospel of Jesus with them and shared with them what you need to do that is right. Some of you work in places where you, you obey the rules of the place you work and you're faithful to the rules of the employer. And the other guys around you that cheat and that steal from the employer, they do not like you. They don't want you around. And they'll do whatever it takes to get you out of there. This is what he's talking about here. But understand this, even if that happens, and even if you per are persecuted for this reason, 
Understand that it is, it is God's way of using you as a witness of His righteousness, a witness of His lordship over you. It's a witness to the world around you. Look back at 1 Peter 3.14. Part A, really, we're going to look at the most here, but in 14 we'll read the text. Verse 14 says this, but even if, now the idea is this, verse 13 says, who's going to harm you? And and really, ultimately, because God's sovereign over all things, no one can really harm you if you're a child of God. But but he's saying there is a possibility. There is a possibility that you could be persecuted for doing the right thing, for serving God, for obeying him. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, he comforts you here. He says you're blessed. That's where blessed doesn't mean happy here. Okay. It doesn't really mean that here, neither does it mean that in, in Matthew 5, necessarily. It actually talks about you are highly privileged. He goes on to say in 14, do not, And do not fear their intimidation, the intimidation of those who persecute you. And do not be troubled by those people who persecute you, is what he's talking about. And, and the reason Peter writes this, is obviously he's dealing with this already in the church here. He's writing to this church because they are already experiencing some form of persecution for doing what is right. Look over in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Now understand this. Full-blown persecution hadn't taken place at the time he's writing this letter. And so what's going on here by the Holy Spirit's design is God is preparing the people for a, a persecution like they would never imagine. The kind of persecution that would take someone and say, do you believe in Jesus? Is he Lord of your life? And if they said yes, they would take you out and they would impale you on a pole and pour wax on you and set you aflame to light the events for the ruler. That's the kind of persecution that was coming. God, the Holy Spirit, is preparing the saints for that. They were receiving persecution here, maybe not to that degree, but they were receiving some form of persecution. He addresses that here in in 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now notice this, it's God who's testing them. It's God who's trying them by fire. and He's burning off the dross. He's burning away anything they trust in besides Jesus, so they will stand firm for Him. Know that their life is His. They have died and they are in Christ. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, a declaration of God's salvation in your heart magnifies the work of Christ. It makes you a Christian. He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome of the, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? But if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer... Now notice, they suffer according to the will of God. Those who do suffer, they do so according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We can entrust our souls to God, our protector, God, our creator... Even if it brings persecution. Peter's telling us if we suffer for being zealous for what is good, we can have confidence that God will even use this persecution for our good. 
Listen, what happens in persecution is it just burns off anything that we trust in besides the Lord Jesus. And it causes us to stand firm on the one thing that we know is real and eternal. And we stand firm in that conviction. And we let the world take its best shot. And we say, you know what? If we die, we win. There's nothing to lose here. There's everything to gain. And that is for our good. Persecution also helps you have assurance that you belong to Jesus. It makes you recognize, am I a real Christian? Am I truly a follower? Am I truly obedient? Am I truly sold out to Him? Or am I actually living for my own religious purposes to feel good about my situation? Or do I really trust in God that He may call me to even stand in such a way that it may cost me my life? Do I believe in God? Do I really believe the gospel? Do I believe that God may call me to do this one day? Yes, I do. I believe that about my life. I believe that I may be called on to die for Jesus. And you may be too. Listen, persecution will weed out those who do not belong to Christ. You will not suffer for one you do not trust in and believe in. Are you convinced of this this morning? Are you convinced that suffering according to God is viewed as a blessing here? Peter says it is because God said it was. If we suffer for the sake of righteousness, God says we're blessed. And many, again, wouldn't equate the word blessed with suffering, but Jesus did. Look at Matthew 5.10. Look at Matthew 5.10. Now, what I, what I really want you to understand as we go to, especially here to Matthew 5.10. Matthew 5.10 and 11. I want you to understand that God counts this for us as a special privilege to suffer for righteousness sake. But this is not an exceptional privilege. You will suffer for Jesus' sake if you stand for him. If you... If you love him and you are dedicated to him, you will suffer some form of persecution now. Okay, it's just going to happen. It may not be to the degree of being impelled or being burned alive. But you will suffer if you follow Jesus faithfully because the world hates you. The world hates Christ because it exposes sin. Now, on the other side of that, your witness to the world when you go through persecution leads people to see something that's within you. That's greater than you. It leads people to see the work of God who is working through you to persevere in difficulties for Jesus' sake. But God has a special place in his heart for those who suffer for his sake. What it says in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people... Now notice this. This is not just one form of persecution. There are actually three types of persecution going on here. And you will fall into one of these if you're a believer. If Jesus is Lord, you will have received this kind of persecution now and you will receive it more as you live in this world. It says this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See there, it's, it's insults, physical persecution, slander, false accusations against you. All types of persecution because you stand for Christ in this world. You stand out from the world. You're obedient to the Lord Jesus. That will bring about persecution. We need to be prepared and convinced that even when this happens, we are blessed. That's what verse 12 says. If this happens, rejoice and be glad. 
For your reward is in heaven. Your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven is great. I think Peter is helping us understand something. Our blessedness, our our privileged position we have by being chosen by God, saved by God's grace, by His great mercy, causes us to realize that this world is not our home. That we have a reward waiting for us in heaven. This is a temporary assignment for us. And we are to be faithful to the Lord Jesus while we are here in face of all opposition. Because one day we will stand before the King of Kings. We will give an account and we will praise Him for what He has done through us. And you may find that if you suffer for righteousness' sake, your witness may have touched more lives than you will ever know. People may hear and see the gospel in you in ways you will never know until that day when you stand before our King. To be blessed means to be highly privileged. We're highly privileged because our Lord ordains that all things work together in our lives. Isn't that amazing? The unbeliever cannot say this. Whatever happens is because of their sin. And whatever happens to us, God will use for our good. And listen, that means when you sin, God's discipline will come to you and that's for your good. He'll rebuke you. He'll correct you. If you're a son, he will discipline you. Everything because of God's grace in Christ comes into our life for a divine purpose to bring God glory and for our good. And that's amazing. God may use suffering in very blessed ways in our lives. And one way in particular I think he uses suffering is God uses suffering in our life to wean us away from the world. To wean us away from the world. That is a blessing in itself. It sets us free from the trap of materialism. Listen, what's sad to me in America, if, if, if persecution came here, it would come in the form of taking away our material goods. And when that happens, you'll find out who belongs to Jesus and who belongs to the world. We have two idols in our country. One of them is ourself and the other one is our stuff. If you remove our stuff, we don't have any identity anymore. I mean, your, your identity is your iPod, right? Or your, your new car. But that's not what the scripture says your identity is. You're a chosen child of God, adopted into God's family. In Christ, you have been saved, set apart to declare his glory. God may use suffering in other ways, in divine ways that are amazing. If you look over in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, God may use our suffering, and here's an astounding part of this, and be convinced of this. God may use our suffering to make us witnesses for His glory. He may use our suffering to convict those very people who harm us. And He may, through our good deeds, through our righteousness, through our obedience, because of Christ's righteousness, through that He may use our zealous, righteous deeds to convict and convert those who persecute us. And you know, that is what we pray for. We pray for our enemies to be saved. Because we know that we were all enemies of a holy and righteous God. And God has done something through the suffering of Jesus to save us. So we are willingly going to suffer for the sake of a witness to our unbelieving persecutors. Look what it says in 2.12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Let me just say this. We know and we've established this here in our church many, many times. You are not saved by good works. You are not saved by your good deeds. Good deeds and good works, though, are the evidence of saving faith. 
They are evidence that you are in the vine, that you are in Christ. And they matter to your witness to the world. That's what this text says. Keep your excellent. This is an imperative command by Peter through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Keep your behavior excellent, prestigious, pure among the Gentiles. He means unbelievers. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, your righteous deeds, your obedient deeds to God's will and God's word, they may observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we established that day of visitation was this, the day that God visits them with salvation. Your very behavior your very witness to the world around you when you are wrongfully attacked may be what God uses to bring glory to His name the day He visits the persecutor with salvation because of your righteousness that's found in Christ, revealed in your life. That's what's going on here. This is how... You read that text. You read that text... And you read other places like in Ephesians chapter 2 and you talk about there where God has saved us. God has done a work in us because we were dead in our sins. And you read that further on that we are saved for good works in chapter 2 verse 10 and 11. We read that in chapter 2 of Ephesians and we see these two come together here. And, and this should motivate us. This should move our hearts so that when we're mistreated, we understand that God is even using our mistreatment to send the gospel out to those who persecute us. Again, God is working behind the scenes in everything we do as Christians. Nothing is wasted on us. And it's worth our being persecuted to see men come to know our Savior and our Lord and to bring Him honor and praise. Listen, whether they come to to know Jesus or not isn't the issue. You're You're being told here to keep your behavior excellent because God is your Father. And He says, Be holy, for I am holy. Because of that, The fringe benefit is this. Unbelievers who even attack you may come to know this Lord who lives in you and dominates your life. If you understand that, you won't have to be afraid when you are persecuted. That's Peter's point. Go back with me to Peter 3, verse 14, part B. Peter says, don't be afraid. If you know that God is the one who who is even with you when you go through suffering, and He counts you and views this suffering as a blessed high, high privilege for you, then you don't have to be afraid of their intimidation. You see that in verse 14b. Do not be afraid of their intimidation and do not be troubled. Peter tells us we are blessed because we are no longer afraid of men. We are blessed. We are highly privileged because we do not any longer have to be fearful of what man can do to us because you belong to God. Now, God is your protector. God is your father, your master, God is causing all things in your life, all events in your life to bring Him glory. And God wants us to trust that this morning. He wants us to revere Him alone this morning. Peter is writing to us this morning telling us, trust that God is in control even if you go through difficulties. God is sovereign over everything, even your suffering, if it's done for my sake. He is there with you. He has not left you. Do not compromise. Do not give in to the opposition around you. That's why Peter, when he says this in verse 14b, he's actually quoting Isaiah 8, 12 through 14. Turn there with me. Isaiah 8, 12 through 14. In in the setting behind this, this is basically this. At the time that he's writing, Isaiah is writing to, to Ahaz, the king of Judah. 
He's writing to him because Ahaz feared that the Assyrians were going to come in and attack and take over. And Israel and Syria wanted Ahaz to join them in an alliance to protect their countries together. But Ahaz refused because he was afraid of the power of Assyria. And so what what he did was, out of fear of men, out of fear of Assyria, Ahaz made an ungodly alliance with them. And the prophet Isaiah comes along and says, "You, you, you've been given a promise by God early on in chapter 8 that God would protect you, God would keep you, that you must follow Him and avoid this ungodly alliance. And he tells him here, he says, Don't fear men, you need to fear God. God is the Lord. He is the one who watches over you. He's the Lord of hosts. This is what this refers to. That Lord of hosts means he's the Lord of angels. An army of angels. Ahaz, don't worry. The God of angels, supernatural beings, is on your side. Don't compromise. Don't be afraid of what men can do to you. Trust in God who is Lord. God who is ruler. And Peter's going to apply that to us. But look what it says here. You're not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, set apart. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. Isn't that amazing? Because Peter's tying this together. If you set Christ apart as Lord of your life and you recognize his lordship and his rulership and his sovereignty over you for standing up for him, for his sake, suffering many things, understand this. He's your sanctuary. Fear him, not men. Fear God, not what men can do to you. God will protect you. God will keep you. Listen, whatever suffering we face, it's temporary. But if for the sake of God, we are privileged enough to do that. God says, don't worry about it. I'm with you. Have no fear. Peter's telling us that fearing the Lord will actually remove the fear of men. That's the idea here. Fearing God, fearing the Lord, the sovereign one, removes the fear of our opposition. It gives us courage to declare the truth about who Jesus is to the world, no matter what comes our way. What Peter's wanting to do is turn our hearts away from fearing what men may do to us and turn our hearts to revering what the Lord has done for us. What He's done for us on the cross. The cross itself, the cross of Christ, declares that God is in control when we suffer for obedience. Does it not? Jesus was the obedient one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And the cross declared that God was in control of even the unjust suffering that Jesus went through by the hands of men. Yet it was not done by men. God ordained it for our good. You realize the greatest, the greatest gift to us was the most horrendous thing that could ever happen to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus did good to those who caused him to be crucified. That would be you and me. The cause of the crucifixion is your sin and my sin. The cause of the crucifixion was that we were standing with the crowd saying, crucify him because of our sin. And now the one who was crucified in our place becomes the Lord of our life and the Savior of men. Isn't that amazing? We should fear him. We should revere him. We should love and adore him and highly exalt him because of his amazing mercy and grace toward us as sinners, as enemies 
Yet he died for us willingly. I want you to see the willingness and the goodness of Jesus in his death for sinners in Luke 23. In Luke 23. And and what we need to understand on the cross, it's not, and I know you all hear, hear this here in this pulpit a lot, but I want to remind you again. It's not just the physical persecution that Jesus is suffering under. He is suffering under the wrath of God against our sins. He is suffering because our sins are being imputed to his account, though he is without sin. He is receiving the wrath that we deserve so that we would receive the grace we could not earn. He is working in our behalf. And what's amazing to me is at some point on the cross, I think, Jesus, you should just quit. But that's not what he does. He is good and he is gracious to the very end, even to the most wretched people beside of him. Look in Luke 23, 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, this is just astounding. I mean, this is this should actually cause you to step back and be amazed that he would say a statement like this regarding you even. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. They're mocking him. Now understand this, when you're being called to suffer... You're following in the footsteps of Christ. And that's an honor and that's a privilege. The soldiers also mocked him. It was bad enough that the religious, now we have the irreligious. They come up to him and they offer him sour wine. And this, was, this is foul. This is a, a tool that they used at many times to, to clean the facilities with. And they stuck it up to his face, mocking him. So you, the undefiled one, and we will de- we'll give you something because you're not undefiled. You look like a wretch on this cross. And they were saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This man's dying. And he's watched the sinless Son of God go through, I'm sure, the trial that he went through. I'm sure these men observed this to some degree. And they saw the way Jesus was dying. And the way Jesus died was in such such an impactful way that even a centurion soldier was moved to the point of saying, this must be the Son of God. Yet this man, in his hardness of his heart and his depravity, he is mocking the one who is standing beside him, hanging beside him on the cross. In the evidence of God's mercy and sovereign grace, look at verse 40. Another man, just as guilty as the man in verse 39, answered and, or, but the other answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Are we indeed, we, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. He has done nothing but good. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You talk about sovereign grace. Two men just as guilty. One, by the mercy of God, will be in paradise with the Lord Jesus by the end of the day. It was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having thus said this, he breathed his last. He died. He suffered to the end for doing good. His dying breaths were the words of salvation to the lost. Even amongst those who would revile him and persecute him, Jesus was not thrown off by his enemies. He was displaying his love for his children while hanging on the cross, suffering miserably. He was saving and doing good to the very end. He was zealous for good. And ultimately, no man hung him on the cross. No man was able to harm Jesus because Jesus was obeying God the Father's command. And he overcame his enemies by suffering unjustly for our sake. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, understand this. Before you were a follower, you were an enemy. You were an enemy of Christ But it was through his obedience, through his goodness, through his suffering and his lordship, you have now been made a subject of his love. You've been placed now as a subject of his love into his kingdom where he is now ruler over your life. He purchased you with his own blood. You belong to God. You're under his protection. That's good news. That's a high privilege. God wants us to be convinced That devotion to our Lord will be a powerful witness to the world around us. We need to be convinced that devotion to the Lordship of Jesus has a divine purpose in God's economy. It is to declare the power of the cross in our life. It is to declare the goodness of God toward unbelievers in this world. Even through common grace. Listen, you're salt and light. The world exists because God hasn't called us home yet. When God calls us home, there's an end of this world. God comes in judgment. But until then, we are salt and light. We are a blessing to everyone around us. But we're really not a blessing unless we understand that there is a Lord that we serve, that we need to declare with boldness. That's what Peter is telling us here. The next thing we see is Peter commands us to, number two, be devoted. Be devoted to the Lordship of Jesus. And what I want you to understand about this, this is an interesting text, and I want to go all the way through 15, but I'm going to save part of that for next week. But what I think is interesting here, he says, be devoted to the Lord Jesus in your heart. And what I want you to understand is later in verse 15, he talks about giving a reason for the hope that lies within us. Now think about this for a second. People see hope. They ask about something that's in us. That's why he says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord, where? In your heart, in the very center of your being. And so that your devotion to Jesus flows from the center outwardly. And so your behavior is transformed by your Savior's work inside of you. 
And we need to remember that. We're commanded here to sanctify Jesus as Lord. And what this means is to set Him apart. To sanctify means to set apart as sacred. Some of you have collectibles, and I'm sure some of you have really, really nice collectibles. And you don't set those down for the two-year-old to play with. You sanctify those collectibles. You put them in a high place. You put them in a guarded place. And what he's saying here is you need to do that with Jesus. He needs to be in the most precious place to be protected and to be displayed. That is in your heart. When you understand his lordship inwardly, it will transform everything you do. It will permeate your entire being is what he's saying. We need to exalt Jesus to a primary place in our life. Now, what I don't want you to think about is this. I don't want you to think this means, okay, Jesus is first place, and then comes family, and then comes church, and then comes work, and then comes friends. That's not what he means at all. Jesus is Lord in church. Jesus is Lord in life. Jesus is Lord in relationships. Jesus is Lord in everything. He is preeminent. He is the reason we do whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we think, whatever we involve ourselves in. He is to have domination in all of those areas. He's God. He's your Redeemer. He is your Savior. He is the one who loved you and suffered in your place. If you're a Christian and Jesus isn't your, your Lord, He is not your Savior. You're truly not a believer. It's a package deal. He dominates because he purchased you again with his own precious blood. He bought you. He paid for you. He got you out of slavery to sin by giving his life in your place. He purchased you. He redeemed you. And because of this, you will revere him. You will adore him. You will trust him. You will obey him as Lord of your life because of that. And again, if you've been purchased by God's grace you will recognize His Lordship. You will recognize His glory. You'll recognize His perfection. You'll recognize His mercy. And you will bow before His greatness willfully. Willfully. Because of the work that He has done in you. You will submit yourself to His will, even if His will is that you suffer as a witness for His sake. Submission to Jesus as Lord will produce evidence of your salvation in your heart that permeates your life. It transforms everything you do. Peter's telling us that we are to sanctify Jesus in our heart there in verse 15. Sanctify Him in our heart. Set Him apart in our soul. And that's what this means. The heart is the soul or the center of your spiritual understanding. It's there that you develop trust and reliance. And there thankfulness is bred and courage is bred and boldness is bred even when you face opposition because you know that the one that died for you is the one who keeps you and the one who provides for you and that promised that he will one day come again to receive you to himself. You can face anything if you know this. There is nothing that you should be afraid of in this life if Jesus is sanctified in your heart. If you have set Him apart as the Lord and understand that He is the master of everything that you do. Stonewall Jackson understood that. Stonewall Jackson stood in the face of opposition knowing that there was a providential God who cared for him and that he would not die one minute before he was supposed to die. And he would go into battle and got the nickname Stonewall because he could stand like a stone wall when bullets and cannons were being hurled at him, knowing that the God he served was sovereign over cannons and sovereign over bullets, and that he would stand with boldness and do what God has called him to do in his duty to his country. We need to have that kind of boldness. 
And you will if you know that Jesus loved you and died for you. The lordship of Jesus is not something harsh. It is, it is an amazing gift because you know he died in your place. And your Lord was loving you enough to suffer so that you could see his glory. The family that we read about, I read about earlier, they understood that. That's why they had courage to stand and to preach the gospel in a place that was hostile. The man understood he could die in India for preaching the gospel. He understood that. He was not a fool. He understood why he went there. He understood that his life was in God's hands. He was hidden in Christ. Nothing could be done to him that God didn't allow or design for a good purpose. But I want you to understand something about that man. That man's family was not a special breed of Christian. Not at all. That man's family was a family that had simply set in their heart Jesus as Lord over their entire life. And they lived that way daily. They sanctified him. They sought to glorify him. And guess what? You can do that too. You would be surprised what may happen if you were cornered and told that if you do do not deny Christ, we will kill you. You'll be surprised if you have set Christ apart in your heart as Lord and you understand his grace and his mercy toward you. You'll be surprised at your boldness and your courage in the face of opposition. You'll be surprised when you go out to witness to people and you get intimidated. How that if you have set apart Christ and you have studied his word, that's part of setting him apart, by the way, is setting apart time to devote yourself to him. If you do that, you'll find yourself filled with boldness. And devotion to defend his name, declare his goodness. All you have to do to be this kind of Christian is think about what God did to redeem you. Think about the price that was paid to make you a child of God, to put you in the kingdom of God. Think about the promises God has provided for you. Look at one of the promises here in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 6. 5, 6 through 11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Humble yourself, he says, humble yourselves. Recognize that you need God. Recognize that you can trust in God. And then put all of those fears, all those anxieties on him. Trust him for these things. Because he cares for you. What a privilege. You who are an enemy of God, you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, you who are always offending a holy and righteous God, you who have had God's love set upon you, now He cares for you. He cares about everything, everything you're anxious about, everything you're fearful about. He cares for you. This is a high privilege. You're blessed. So verse 8 says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Now, where does this boldness come from? I mean, he's just described something very intimidating. And Peter understood this, by the way, because Jesus told Peter in the garden, said, watch and pray, Peter, watch and pray, because the devil wants to come and sift you. Peter says, I got to sleep. I'm weak. Peter learned his lesson here. Peter says, now you be sober of spirit. This enemy is around, but you know what? You can resist him. How do you resist him? By knowing what God has done for you in his word. By knowing that Jesus is Lord, by studying God's word, by filling your heart and mind with God's commands and God's blessings and promises. 
Resist him. Firm in your doctrinal understanding. That's what this word faith means. Be firm in your doctrinal comprehension of God, what he has called you to do, what Jesus has accomplished for you. That's how you resist the devil. Know the truth. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This isn't unique. You can do this, he says to the saints. And I'll tell this to you. You can do this. You can stand firm in the truth. And be filled with the boldness of that family that stood in India. With their arms wrapped around his boys as they died in that inferno. You can be firm knowing that you are in the hands of a sovereign and righteous God who loves you and cares for you and will use even that death to glorify his name. And he's doing so right now. As you hear this testimony. After you have suffered for a little while, what a gracious term. Compared to eternity, our life is a little while. It's a vapor. The God, the God of all favor and mercy, he's talking about all grace. The God who elected you, called you. That means individually, personally, picked you out by name. Called you. To his eternal glory in Christ. That same God will himself. Isn't that interesting? Personally, himself, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is our confidence. We need to be convinced that this is true. We need to be devoted to this truth to the, for, the, for the sake of his glory and for the sake of those around us who will see our testimony. Just think about this. This will convince you to face persecution and count it as a blessing. In verse 15, back in chapter 3, I won't go into all this because we're going to talk about this more next week, but Peter commands us to set Christ apart as Lord for the glory of God and for the good of those who ask us to give this reason or to give an account for what they see in us. And think about this. I want you to think about this as we prepare for next week. What should our enemies and what should the world see in us that makes them want to come up and ask you about hope? Shouldn't they see something? I mean, think about this. This is a good test of, of what is shining in your life. When was the last time somebody came up to you and said, tell me about why you can persevere in this hardship with joy? Tell me about the hope that I see in you when you're being treated poorly, when you're being mistreated. When was the last time somebody came up to you and said, Tell me why you act like this. Why do you not compromise? Why do you not do these things that the world does? It's no big deal. Come on. Just think about when was the last time somebody asked you that? And if they haven't asked you that, think about why they haven't asked you that. Have you allowed fear of men to dominate your life and not the fear of God? If so, you can repent of that. And you can be firm in the faith by equipping your heart and mind in the word. What the world needs to see in us is our faith and our love for Jesus lived out in our daily life. When they see that, when they see that you truly love Jesus to the point that you will obey his will and his word, they'll come up to you and ask you about the hope that's in you. And you know what else? They'll be probably even more so convinced when they see that you recognize that you fall short of his glory. And that you're willing to confess that and repent of those sins and look to the one who never fell short for you. 
when they see that you're not a hypocrite, when they see that you're not fake, when they see that you rely on Jesus as your Savior and you repent continually, they'll see the hope that's in you. You have been chosen and saved and you know that you have a Savior who loves you enough that when you fall short, He will correct you, He will pick you up, and He will help you to persevere in the faith continually. People will see that. We're not perfect. We are absolutely forgiven, atoned for. We are justified, declared righteous before a holy and righteous God by the work of Jesus. And we look to that continually. And when we do so, people want to see or want to say to us, why? That's why you that's why you can stand for this. That's why you can get up every, every morning and face hardship in your job. That's amazing. Tell me more about this, Jesus. And there's your opportunity to witness. Peter's going to tell us next week that our submission to God's word and God's commands will lead men to ask us about the hope that motivates us. The hope that motivates us to persevere in righteousness in the face of persecution. So think about it. What motivates you to obey God today? What motivates you to be here this morning? And I I believe the answer for, for the majority, all of you this morning, would be the gospel. That's what motivates you to be here this morning. But but think about this. What motivates you to do what's right in the workplace? What motivates you to to do what's right in the world? Is it legalism, the idea that you want to try to please men and make them happy so you do certain things to look good? Or do you actually, because of the gospel, respond with obedience and thankfulness to the Lordship of Jesus? Do you respond out of a grateful heart because of the hope that you have that your sins have been forgiven, gone as far as the east is from the west? That's what should motivate us to obey God. You see... We, we, we obey, we follow the commands of God. We walk in sanctification out of a thankful heart in response to the hope that we've been given because of Christ's work on the cross. First Peter 3 teaches us that God views all the things that go on in life, all the suffering for His sake as a blessing because our behavior in those situations opens the door for evangelization. You're left here to declare with a zealous life an eager life, the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why you exist. Your life is to be dominated by this. That's why Peter will tell us next week, we will be commanded to be prepared to eagerly and biblically give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Give a, a defense of our faith. Our hope is our faith. That's what he's referring to here. And, and the way you do that is you, you know what He has promised in His Word. You understand His Word. Be convinced of it. Be devoted to it. And as we think about that over the next week, ask yourself, how devoted to the Lord Jesus are you in relation to hearing Him speak to you through His Word? In other words, how devoted are you to studying the Word of God? And I don't mean in an academic way. That's important. That's part of it. But it's not just, I've done my Scripture reading for the day. How devoted are you to hearing God speak to you through His Word? Meditating, pouring over it over and over again, thinking about it, and then applying that into your life. And I think we can all be challenged by this to excel still more, right? But if if you're going to be able to have an answer for the people who come up to you and say, why are you at church on every Sunday? It better be because that's what we do. No, it better be because of what Jesus did. What Jesus accomplished in my place. And you should be able to biblically articulate what you believe. Your faith. 
That's what he's saying to do here. If you're devoted to the Lord Jesus, you will be able to do this. You'll have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You'll hunger for his word. And you'll see him as Lord over every area of your life. And it'll be manifest in work, in play, in home life, whatever you do in public, in private. Jesus will dominate and actually actually bring life to every situation you go into. And if you do this, if you set Christ apart as Lord, you recognize his lordship, you, you admire his lordship, you follow in his lordship, you obey his lordship, you can expect God's blessing. And you can expect courage to stand in the face of opposition. Because if you stand up for what you really believe, if you stand firm that Jesus is Lord over your life, you're going to be confronted by the world. And you're going to be given the courage to stand firm in the faith and declare his goodness to the world around you, even in the face of all kinds of persecution. Next week, we'll look at how to be prepared. How to be prepared to give a reason, a biblical Reason And also understand this, not just a biblical reason, but I believe in the context, we should be eagerly waiting for that time to give the reason. It's the idea of we should be zealous. We should be like on the edge of our seat waiting for somebody to ask us about the hope and then just be able to pour it out with gentleness and with reverence. So let's give thanks that God will prepare us through his word to do that over this next week. Father, we pray that today you would be glorified, you would be honored as our Lord and our Master, that you would equip us so that we can give an answer to anyone and everyone at all times for the hope that lies within us. And Lord, I recognize that when sometimes when we hear a text like this, people will respond and they will think, yes, that's great for the leaders, but that's not speaking to me. But God, I, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of all of us here today that every Christian here is being commanded to declare this hope that is within them and to do so with a biblical accuracy that will bring you glory. Father, we pray as a church, we humble ourselves as a church and confess our failure to study as we should and we pray that you would equip us even more this week, that we would be united in purpose and in mind and with one voice, glorify your name in the world around us. That is our desire Father, we pray that you would convict and that you would challenge and you would change us. And God, I pray even today for those that are in our midst that may not know you in a saving way, that you would convert, that you would grant repentance and faith so that they would be able to give a reason for the hope that is within them with gentleness and reverence for your name's sake and for the good of others around us. I pray that you would do all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus, our Master. Amen. And oh, but sometimes it's so
pray again after that song and then we'll have a few minute break to find some refreshments before we start our adult class if you would bow with me father today we we do acknowledge what that song was about we 
we know that our hope endures, that you are all-sufficient, and that you are with us at all times. And that is such an amazing privilege. We give you thanks today. We thank you for this privilege of hearing from you and being able to share the goodness of your word with others. We pray that you would be honored in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.